Hello, brave explorers of the forbidden, the discouraged, the vulnerable, and the terrifying. And hello to Brooke Warner, my co-host, who I know likes writing that pushes past conventional boundaries. Hello. Brooke, I'm interested in this notion of writing what terrifies you because our guest today, the YA writer Ashley Woodfolk, has said that she was terrified to write her new novel, Nothing Burns as Bright as You. And I know that you've worked with many writers who are dealing with subjects that terrify. And and I was thinking that there are two sides of writing what terrifies you. One is confronting yourself and what terrors you hold or have experienced. And then there's also the, the terrifying nature of revealing yourself to others. And the two usually go hand in hand, but often what's terrifying resides most in the act of revealing yourself to others because... You know, we're group-oriented creatures who want to belong and fear ostracism, and, and the act of writing always opens up that possibility of not belonging, of being judged. At the same time, so much of the value of reading and writing is about the stories that risk um, that sort of vulnerability, which is one reason why so many authors are heroic to me. They essentially put their lives, their belonging at risk to tell their truth. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, and even though we're talking about fiction with Ashley today, and hers is a novel in verse, all genres can terrify. <laughs> Many do. Uh, and that point of truth is really why I find memoirists to be particularly brave. I mean, I, of course, know that fiction draws from truth, too. But it's already scary to write no matter what, you know, you're worried about people's judgments? Or are you going to do it as well as others? Is your craft strong enough? Just the very vulnerability of putting your words into the world in the first place. Um, and then particularly when it's true, you're claiming this story as your truth, you know, be that memoir or be that fiction as in Ashley's case. I do think it's one of the bravest things that a person can do. You know, it's true that going deep into the truth, of course, is where the most important stuff resides. And that's where we connect to our readers. And it's where we risk. I also think it's important to say that that's where you grow as a writer. You know, writing what terrifies you is a growth journey. And, um, you know, to some extent, I think this is where all writers really should be. It's not easy to get there or to, you know, intentionally put yourself there, but to push up against that risk and fear is rewarding. And it's, you know, probably at least one measure that you're doing something right. Definitely. And, you know, we've talked about this topic before on the show, in fact, many times, I think. And but it's I, I think it's a topic that's relevant to every writer and every piece of writing. So it's worth revisiting. And and when I think of my own what I'm going to call my vulnerability journey, because one way to think of my writing journey is to to call it that. I'm less conscious of other people's judgments now because this has been, you know, one of the gifts of aging to me. Um, and I guess just one of the gifts of, of writing a lot and publishing a fair amount um, is just not caring what others think as much as I used to. But I remember when my early stories were published and when people, you know, instead of reading them as fiction, looked for ways to interpret them as if they were my life, you know, which was terrifying on several different levels. I still want to go back in time and correct some of their impressions and judgments, um, and I'm still a little bit terrified of them. I think fiction should be read as fiction if it's presented that way, but we have this emerging category of fiction called autofiction that's quite trendy these days, and it, it really blurs the lines. Autofiction is fiction that the author claims is drawn directly from your life. So it's more on the fiction side than creative nonfiction, which, is, which has an emphasis on the nonfiction part of the story. And Ashley's book, uh, Nothing Burns as Bright as You, isn't autofiction, but it does draw on her life because part of the story 
is about the decisions she might have made as a teenager in different situations if she knew she were gay. And Ashley realized she was gay later in life when she was 30. So the novel explores the hazy boundaries that happened in a, in a few of her teen friendships, focusing on two girls in a reckless and somewhat toxic relationship. So it's not autofiction per se, but there are scenes in this novel taken directly from her life. So, you know, it kind of, kind of leans into that, I guess. And I wonder if writing the novel as terrifying as that might have been was a way to find peace with herself and that other self that wasn't able to be fully in the world. Yeah, I mean, those are are good questions. And I think the exact kinds that people hypothesize about, you know, when it's when there is something that is even a type of autofiction, you know, we always want to put ourselves into like, which parts of this are true, because, you know, she's writing about a central truth in her life. And she's drawing from direct experiences and shaping it into this story of what might have been. And I love that actually, as a jumping off point for fiction, it's such an interesting and dramatic starting point. Um, You know, I think a lot of auto fiction, obviously, perhaps is is exploring emotional truth. And to some degree, all fiction, I guess, is because I think you have to write from what you know. I mean, that's a truism, of course. But then sometimes people question that when you have genre fiction and fantasy and sci-fi. But at the heart of all of those stories are our characters, you know, and we do draw, of course, the emotional truth of our characters. And the more true you can be to yourself, and your truth, the more that truth is rendered on the page, of course. And I just always think like readers feel that it's just this deeply known kind of intuitive thing. And so I think that's why our our skin kind of goosebumps when we read real truth and why it's so terrifying, like Ashley was sharing or will share when we get to the interview. Yeah. Yeah, Brooke, this uh, book and this discussion made me think of, of two writing exercises. And I was also thinking it's been a long time since we've given people writing exercises. So if you if you don't like writing exercises, bear with me. But I found these interesting to kind of think about. And and the first one is, is to think of what would terrify you to write. Uh, this was interesting for me, you know, no matter if it's, if it's just for yourself or for a publication. When I first challenged myself with this question, I wasn't sure if I could locate something that genuinely terrified me, but then I actually remembered an experience that I'm uh, more than hesitant to share. So I think it'd be really interesting for me to actually write into that. And I think this exercise can be good to go through no matter what you do with the writing, because I bet it will influence your other work in some way, maybe ways you don't even know, but for the better. And and then the second exercise is to, is to think about choices you didn't make when you were younger and imagine if you did, especially when it comes to love and desire. Ashley imagines the drama of choice that went unrecognized, but her imagination doesn't take her to simple fulfillment, but to an exploration of all that might happen or might have happened on that path. So think of the conflicts, the hazards, the passions, the fulfillment, all of it. So this isn't a, like a what if exercise that's often used for fiction, but a what might have been exercise. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, it, it's an intellectual exercise I already engage in from time to time. I think we all do it. You know, the what if, the path not taken, the choice you didn't seize on. You know, I actually think I've given enough mental space to this topic to have written a whole book myself in my mind. You know, this examination of why your life didn't go certain ways can push against some hard truths as well and some self-understandings. And I sometimes say to my memoirists that if they've never experienced an actual physical sensation that they might throw up while they're 
they're writing <laughs> that they haven't pushed themselves hard enough, you know, to that radical edge of, of what your own limits are for what's possible. And it's not that I am a sadist, I promise. It's just that I do think it's important for authors to know what that edge is so that they know if they're playing it too safe. It's just very easy to stay in that safe space. And so I'm going to toggle on to your little exercise and offer an extension, which is just to write the uh, thing down that you don't want to write. You know, what are you not writing on the page because you don't want to? Just capturing that, tuck it away in a safe place, maybe for your eyes only as a starting point. But doing that exercise can be really enlightening because it can help you to see or uncover, you know, what might be there that is yet to be written. You're right, Brooke. It's so easy to play it safe. Sometimes you don't even know you're playing it safe. I can't remember which episode it was, but I think you or a guest said that goodness lies on the other side of fear. And we've got to get to that other side of fear in our writing. So I look forward to talking with Ashley about that after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Ashley Woodfolk because she's a writer who has been so supportive of NaNoWriMo. Ashley is a member of NaNoWriMo's Writers Board and has been a NaNoWriMo camp counselor. She graduated from Rutgers University and worked in children's book publishing for over a decade, and we actually also crossed paths there. And now she's a full-time mom and writer and lives in a sunny Brooklyn apartment with her cute husband, her cuter dog, and the cutest baby in the world. And her books include The Beauty That Remains, When You Were Everything, Blackout, and the Fly Girl series. And now, Nothing Burns As Bright As You. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited as well. And you've said that your latest novel, Nothing Burns As Bright As You, is your feminist manifesto and the queer novel of your heart. But that as much as you love the book, everything about it terrified you when you were writing it. And, you know, when I'm asked for my best writing advice, I always talk about being vulnerable on the page and how we read for connection more than anything else. So vulnerability should be our goal. But in saying that, I don't think I've ever truly written something that, that actually terrifies me. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious what that meant for you, especially since writing a novel takes such a long time. And so you have to wake up to that, that terror every day. Yeah, um, I won't, I won't say that I woke up to that terror every day, only because writing this was a really different experience from writing all of my other novels. For one, no one knew I was writing this novel. <laughs> when I was writing it, um, it was kind of something that just happened. And so it wasn't that... I was writing it and I was afraid because I didn't even know for a while that it was a novel. I thought I was just sort of doing some, I guess, therapeutic poetry writing. Um, hmm. But then once I sort of realized that, oh, like I'm writing a story, I'm not just writing poetry. Oh, like I'm an agented author. I should probably tell somebody that I wrote a book. <laughs> that was when things got scary for me. Hmm. So, so yeah, it, it wasn't fully a decision. Like I didn't, I didn't decide to write this. Um, it was something that just sort of happened. Um, I think a combination of just like timing and, you know, anxiety and <laughs> therapy and all these things sort of collided. 
Um, and this was written during the summer of 2020. And so it was sort of like, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic when everything was still really scary and nobody knew what was going on and nobody knew how long everything would last. And I was basically stuck inside my apartment. All I was doing was taking care of my kid and going to virtual therapy. <laughs> and like, I just had a lot of time to think because as busy as you are, when you're taking care of a toddler, there isn't that much mental stimulation going on. <laughs> so yeah, I just had a lot of time to think. And I think being physically and mentally and emotionally stuck with myself sort of brought up a lot of stuff that I had been suppressing or ignoring for a really long time. So I, I can't really say that I have advice for approaching um, writing that actually terrifies you. Or, or maybe I guess my advice would be don't approach it as something that you plan on selling or something that you plan on becoming um, or hoping to be published. Approach it as something that is just good for you and that makes your body feel better, helps you process something. Um, because usually if you're doing that, um, or at least that's been my experience, is that I write more honestly when I'm not, when I'm not thinking about anyone else. Thanks for that. It's, it's good. It took a second to get there, but I think there's a reason why, you know, it's, it is terrifying and so many writers struggle with that. And I, I wanted to bring our listeners attention to this very gripping essay that you wrote for Catapult called How Writing My Young Adult Novel Helped Me Reclaim the Queer Girlhood I Lost. You talk about how writing a queer young adult story allowed you to access a version of your queer youth, I guess a version you didn't get to have. And so you wrote, um, there are scenes in this novel taken directly from my life, moments where I bumped up against what I wanted versus who I thought I was, what I was desperate for versus what I thought I should do. Could you expand on this a bit? And how did writing fiction allow you to live the life you could have or should have lived? Thank you so much for reading that. Uh, <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, um, I wrote that essay pretty shortly after I finished the book, um, just because I, I don't know. I think I think I, I think another reason why this book scares me is because of identity politics, and um, just like the way that people expect a queer person to to look or to move through the world or what relationships they expect a queer person to have. And so I think I, I wrote that essay because I was just really nervous about what it would be like for someone like me who is straight passing, who is married to a man to write a novel that was really gay. Um, and uh, I think it, it sort of allowed me to expand upon some of my experiences because I can say with all honesty that every emotion in this novel is an emotion that I have personally experienced. The relationship in the novel, I have I have had those kinds of relationships, but I didn't necessarily like have those relationships as completely or as fully as my characters. I sort of allow my characters to because there was always a moment or a time at which I backed away or I stopped something from happening. Because in my head, I was a straight girl. And it didn't matter what I was feeling. Like intellectually, I would say, well, but I can't be having these feelings. I'm straight. Or like, you know, these feelings aren't real. I'm straight. Like, I'm just caught up in the moment. Or like, I just always rationalized it, I guess. Um, because in my mind, I was this straight person. 
And so I think through writing the novel, I was able to go back to revisit some of those moments or, you know, even like legitimate, complete scenes that played out in my life and give them a different ending or give them um, the ending that I wish that they had or make the choice that I didn't make when I was in those moments as a kid or as a young adult or whatever. I think for me, it was about giving myself a bravery that I didn't have when I was younger and also sort of applying some of the things that I know about, you know, queer theory or queer history or, you know, by erasure that are such a huge part of our society that I, you know, knowledge that I didn't have when I was younger. But looking at a lot of those experiences or a lot of those situations, I'm able to say now like, oh, this is what was happening in that moment. That is what I was feeling. And those feelings were valid. I just didn't know that at the time. I think that's such an interesting place to write from, to write from a bravery that you didn't have when you were younger. You know, it kind of combines fiction and autofiction in an interesting way. And I read that one of the questions you wished you were asked but haven't been is why the characters in Nothing Burns don't have names. And, and I think this is an interesting choice for an author. So, so why did you decide not to give them names? So I have actually been asked that at this point, but when I wrote, when Sorry. I, no, it's fine. <laughs> I was afraid of that. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's actually um, something that I like to talk about. Um, I didn't give them names for a couple of different reasons, but the main one was um, when I realized that I was writing a novel <laughs> and I realized that people might read it. Um, I really liked the idea of, um, a reader sort of getting the secondhand admiration that the narrator has for her love interest. So, you know, in those moments when the narrator is saying like, you know, you validate me, you are beautiful, you are everything I've ever wanted, or like whatever the case may be, whatever she's saying in those moments, I really liked the idea of a reader like accepting that or receiving that as something about them. Um, because I think it's very rare um, to find someone who really adores you and like who has that level of adoration for you and voice and gives voice to it on a regular basis. Um, and obviously the character is not even giving voice to it actually <laughs> to, you know, her love interest, but it's what she's thinking. And I think that it can be really empowering or really fulfilling to, to read something that makes you feel seen in that way. Um, so that was one of the big reasons. The other reason was because because this was such a personal novel as I was writing it, I couldn't imagine giving sort of, I guess, like fake names to these very real characters who were based on real people in my life. And I couldn't imagine like assigning, you know, a fake name to, I guess, how intense my feelings for these people were. That's... that's uh insightful thank you i'm i'm really intrigued by what we might at this point call a subgenre which is the novel in verse and is particularly prominent in ya and we've had other guests on the show um elizabeth acevedo kwame alexander and jacqueline woodson to name a few uh, who've all written books in verse and so we're very curious about your choice to write a novel in verse and what it gave you as a storyteller you know that maybe prose couldn't or didn't yeah um I think that I sort of touched on this before, but it wasn't really a choice <laughs> because I think I was processing a lot of trauma and a lot of like suppressed emotions and sort of this like latent queerness that had always 
been there, but that I had sort of ignored or pushed away or tried to bury. My therapist's advice was that I should try to like write to process a lot of this. And through writing, I mean, poetry was my first love. Like when I first started writing, I was writing poetry. But I think like once I started seeking publication after after I graduated college, I just moved towards prose for whatever reason. Maybe it just felt easier, um, emotionally easier, because poetry was so important to me. I think I was I was a little bit afraid of it. And so when I when I was sort of having, you know, these emotional breakthroughs or whatever in therapy, um, she suggested that I write. And so I started writing, thinking I was just like writing some poems and, you know, going back to like the perspective, like the the fact that it's written in second person. I think I was writing a lot of this poetry to specific people that I had had um, experiences with in my life that felt unresolved or that I never got closure on. Um, And so to write a poem and to write it and say you, I think was part of that processing for me. And so I didn't decide to write it in verse. I just started writing poetry and it ended up being a book (laughs) or it ended up being a story that then became a book. And so I do think that telling a story in poetry is a very different experience though, because there's less space for everything. And so you have to really decide like what is most important to the story that you're telling. And for me, what ended up being the most important was the emotional journey of the characters. Like you don't get a ton of information about, I don't know, these characters like interests. You get a little bit, but you don't get a lot. Um, You don't get a ton about like what these characters look like or what their house looks like or what city or town they live in. And so I really decided to focus on what the two characters felt for each other and what they felt about their lives and about things that happened to them. Um, And so for me, writing poetry is more about an emotional journey than it is about whatever physical aspects of the characters or their lives exist. That was interesting, Ashley. And since you were talking about the poetry, of the novel, uh, fire is a is a significant symbol throughout the story, and quite aptly represents the passion and the volatility of this relationship. And so, I'm curious how that symbol came to you. If it was a symbol that guided your writing from the start, if it merged organically from the story itself, and you decided to kind of you know make it uh, a through line. Yeah, um, I think fire is kind of the perfect metaphor for young love in lots of different ways. And I also think that there's something really beautiful about things that are dangerous, not just elemental things like fire or like water, which also shows up a lot in this novel, but also when it comes to people, like dangerous people are really beautiful and really alluring. And there's something like sexy about danger. Um, And so I thought it was the perfect metaphor for sort of this toxic relationship that the girls have in that it was beautiful and they definitely have these moments of like softness and vulnerability, but also that it was, it was, it was literally dangerous. It was, um, it was not a healthy situation for either party. So I think that is the big reason why um, fire became this sort of extended metaphor over the course of the novel. I also think that the whole opposites attract thing is, is very true. And it's a theme that I explore in this novel a lot by comparing one of the girls to fire and one of the girls to water. 
But I also think those two things are drawn to each other for a reason. And yeah, all of that, I guess, came together to make fire just like make sense as a big theme in the book. And also one of the people in my personal life who the love interest is, is, is sort of inspired by just has always felt very fiery. Like she's the kind of person who just has like a fiery personality and, you know, is just like a big presence. And so that was also a part of it. Well, Ashley, um, here's our final question for you, which is about the rich language that you use, uh, particularly to describe your main two characters' love for one another. Uh, yeah, I'm going to read again. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. Um, but yeah, you had these lines that really sum up their love. It says, we added up to a little too much. You loved me more than I knew. I loved you more than you could take. It's so compelling. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe read a section from your novel. Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I picked out a chapter that happens pretty early on in the novel. And I mean, I say chapter, but you know, it's in verse. So it's like three pages. Um, <laughs> it is when it is right after they set a fire at their school um, at the it's at the very beginning of the novel. So it's not really a spoiler. Like everybody knows that it's a fire at the beginning of this book. But the narrator's brother shows up to pick them up. And there's sort of a moment where the narrator is able to. I don't know. I think this I think this chapter really shows like the two girls dynamic. But the name of the chapter is called This Closeness. When my brother pulls up in the back lot to pick me up, he's leaning out the driver's side window, shaking his head. You two are a hot mess, he says, but he smiles because he loves us anyway. He had his last final two weeks before Christmas, and his next semester won't start for nearly a month. So when they called my house, he answered and pretended to be daddy so well that they believed him. I'll come and collect them both right away, he tells us, he said. I'm very disappointed. I don't know what has gotten into them. Oh, we're extremely close with her family. Don't worry if you can't reach them. We'll handle it. I've never been happier to see him. You skip over and wrap your arms around his neck. You say, Mama's going to kill us. Like she's your mother. Like he's your brother. Like his features are the same ones on your face, but bigger, broader, a little less pretty, and not mine. Your hatchback is parked right beside his pickup, but you abandon it so you can ride with us. He just got his hair done, so when we climb into the truck, the whole cab smells of coconuts. Some of his locks swing like vines around his brooding brown face, while others are interwoven, dark macrame art hanging on his head instead of walls. Seeing his, I don't miss my hair at all. Fire, he says, really? And you bite your bottom lip. I lean against the window, staring at the still smoldering dumpster, and nod. He plays something slow and melancholy on the stereo, as he starts to drive, and the song sounds the way my heart feels, savage and braying and somber, horses running unbridled at night. What is this music, you ask? It sounds like what's inside me. And I have to swallow hard like I'm taking a pill, have to push my forehead closer to what I know is the cold wind rushing outside his window to stop myself from saying, Jesus, me too. When my brother says the name of the band, you don't commit it to memory the way other people would, typing what they don't want to forget into their phones, writing on the backs of their hands, repeating it silently to themselves until they know all the words by heart. No, 
You trace the letters up the length of my arm, as if I am an extension of you. Then you stare into my eyes, hard and long, demanding, without words, that I remember too. This is another part of our thousand-pronged problem. There are moments when our heads and hearts and bodies align so exactly that I know losing you would unravel the fabric of my universe. But in the same second, the same breath, I am hit with another truth. Having you any more completely than I already do might bring the same ruinous reckoning. The roads are a little icy since it's so cold, and my brother drives more carefully than he normally would. And it's endless, this road, this feeling, this closeness that is a little too close, but not nearly close enough. Just before your exit, you slip your gloves on and put your warm hand on my knee. The fabric is soft when I cover your hidden fingers with my own, which are ashy from the cold, weathered, and exposed. You say worth it because you never regret anything, and I perpetually do. I nod even though it's not what I mean. It's not even close to being true. You believe me because you only ever say what you mean, that or nothing at all. You can't imagine truth as anything but a window, but for me, it's a collapsing brick wall. So I lie, and you smile, and I look at our hands again wondering how we can touch so gently when we're so monstrously in love, how there can be so much peace between two chaotic neutrals like us, how storm-swollen feelings can fit into our tiny human hearts, and how part of me doesn't regret it. Part of me was maybe telling some version of the truth the part of me that can't think of anyone I'd rather burn down the world with than you. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Beautiful. That was amazing, Ashley. So poetic and so many interesting character dynamics there. Um, So thank you for reading that. That's amazing. I hope everybody who's listening goes out and buys your book. How could they not? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Go get it. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. That was a treat. Thank you guys so much. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend has to do with Barnes & Noble, which is a complicated player in the world of books. They're the last big bookstore with 600 stores. I didn't know that. And, And the reason we're highlighting them this week is because, well... They're doing better than expected. They've been down for so long. That's, that's interesting to say. I always hear, are they still around? Uh, Brooke, do you want to say what we mean by that, that they're doing better than expected? Yeah, basically, BNN has had a pretty rough uh, like decade or even more. For a long time, BNN was the bully. You know, They were the ones threatening to put bookstores out of business before that was Amazon. Of course, now that bully is Amazon instead. And no one in the book industry wants to see BNN go out of business anymore in the way that you might have heard a number of years ago. I think because they're a real bookstore, you know, they actually sell a lot of books and it has a better reputation than it's had. And a recent New York Times article highlighted Barnes & Noble as being vital to that ecosystem that we talked about when we had uh, Andy Hunter of Bookshop on recently. Yeah, you know, it was fascinating uh, to me to read that despite the rise of other formats, especially audiobooks, which continue to skyrocket. Um, but it's interesting that physical books still bring in so much of publishers' revenue. In fact, 76% of publishers' sales revenue in last year. And more than half of those are sold by Amazon, but Burns & Noble is a big player too. And I, I want to note that I've, I've really admired the moves their new CEO, James Daunt, has made. He's allowing store managers to focus on making the stores 
more a part of the community um, as opposed to being like, you know, cookie cutter McDonald's franchises, which is the way I think they really became over the years. So that's really helped them succeed, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I'm glad to see that they're doing well or better. You know, BNN has been complicated for us for a lot of reasons. They've changed their buying practices lately. I think you're rightly noting that James Daunt is taking the lead on that. I think they're being more lean and more streamlined. Um, and if this keeps them from going under, of course, that's a good thing. But we have sometimes struggled to get our books into Barnes & Noble. I think they used to take a lot more inventory without worrying about it, just feeling like, oh, well, they'd return the books. And of course, you hate those returns. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're playing smarter and that's ultimately good. But it ha- is having some effects on us, you know, about actually getting stock into stores. That's interesting, Brooke. And a reminder of how complex this ecosystem really is. I mean, you mentioned this, but I remember back in the early 90s when Borders and Barnes & Noble were portrayed as the villain that Amazon is now. Uh, but now bookstores and other independents are rooting for Barnes & Noble as if, you know, Barnes & Noble is practically an independent bookstore in some ways. Right. Oh, how the ties have shifted, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and BNN has certainly improved its reputation. Um, so that's good. And I liked how the New York Times article noted uh, your your enemy's enemy is your friend, you know, or should mm-hmm. be your friend, I guess. So on that note, uh, you know, we're always your friendly weekly inspiration podcast here. We want to be your friend and not your enemy's enemy enemy anyone um <laughs> so we're your friend <laughs> we're, we're your friend let's put it at that yeah uh and so yeah if you read something interesting that you want to share with us please let us know because a lot of these trends are actually coming from folks emailing us with stories they want us to look at and a lot of times we see things coming through you know certainly in new york times and elsewhere but a lot of times we miss stuff so drop us a line anytime thank you for listening and uh, as always we'll be back next week